Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Ephesians chapter 4. You're following along today. I want to tell you, I had something happen in ministry this week that hasn't happened in two decades. So that's always unique, right? So I have many times prepared a message, spent all my hours, and then preached something different. That's happened several times. That didn't happen this week, just once. On Monday, I prepared a message on Deborah. Had it done completely. Thankfully, I didn't send it to my assistant, Tony, to make the sermon card because on Tuesday... It just didn't really fire in my soul, so I wrote a new preaching outline, and that was on Deborah, Judges 4 and 5. I thought, well, this is the direction we'll go. They walk with God, the saint of Deborah, in a very chaotic time in Israel's history, and that didn't fire. So on Wednesday, I spent a lot of hours writing a whole message on King Asa, 2 Chronicles 14, 15, and 16, and unfortunately, I did have Tony make a message card for me for King Asa, and there was a lot of content, and uh, didn't fire. And so now I've written three full messages, and... Uh, I get to Friday, and the Lord calls us something to come alive. And so I'm going to preach to you a message that I've entitled today, Sent by God. And though it doesn't look at one specific Old Testament character, um, it is what God wants me to do. And listen, I have learned, I've gotten smart enough that uh, I'm not called to be the most in, have the most ingenuity of crafting something. I'm just called to do what I'm told. And what I'm told is to, to preach to you this morning what God wants me to preach to you. Now, As you know, if you've been coming to this church for any amount of time, I am, as a leader in God's church, I am obsessed with the idea of apostolic movements, what we call missional Christianity. God help me, but I actually do believe that the church in America has the same potentials, has the same latencies, and the same capacities to be the same kind of movement that started the early church movement. I actually believe that. I think we're very far off from that currently, but I believe we have the same potentials that the early church had, the same potentials that the Celtic missionary movement had that changed the entire Western world. I believe we have the same potentials, the same latencies, and the same capacities as the Wesleyan revivals. I believe we have the same potential and reality of the Iranian revival that's happening right now that is spreading all over Iran, and the same as any other apostolic movement that has ever happened. But I want you to hear me. I believe that right now we must give our lives to the rediscovery of the movement form of the church. That is to say, not the maintenance, institutionalized, maintaining form of the church, but the movement form of Christianity. I think in rediscovering it, we will also discover there are a multitude of resources for us to be a church that, listen, not only survives in the 21st century, but thrives and establishes a more authentic expression of what it means to be a Jesus movement in our time. I actually do believe that. And if I didn't believe that, I'd quit. I actually believe we have that capacity. I've been spending my life trying to make that happen. So about 10 years ago, it started probably 15 years ago, but about 10 years ago, God really began to stir my heart. And if we are going to be that kind of movement, that kind of Christianity, we've got to confess some things have to change. They have to change, folks. Why? Because what got us here won't get us there. So if what has gotten us here is what we see in America in Christianity's impulse and imprint, we can't keep doing what we've done and get there. Things have to change. 
there has to be a rediscovery. There has to be a reappropriation for what God intends. I think that one of the places that offers what we call the maximum point of leverage for change is the area of ministry and leadership. Now, you know what a leverage is. A lever is one of the simple machines. You use a lever to get maximum yieldedness from minimum effort. So you want the little, least amount of effort to produce the most amount of results. So this is an intentional thing. So this is not, let's just change our message and preach to all the current Christians in America. That'll take generations. The leverage point is to leverage in the area of next-gen leadership. Those who will be pastors, those who will be 501c3 leaders, those who will be presidents of companies, those who will be business leaders and sent ones in the business world. It's a strategic thing. And listen, if we're willing to reconceive and rethink about the nature of ministry and leadership, I propose to you it has a tremendous impact. Now, if that's the case, if the leverage point is leadership, you should be begging the question. You've already asked it. Well, what kind of leadership do we need, Craig, in the 21st century? Well, I would argue if you want to be a missional church, a church that is on mission, then you must have an appropriate form of leadership to do that. A revolution requires revolutionaries. Moved on people begin movements. If you want a non-missional church that is about us four and no more, then you have a non-missional leadership to lead that church. And I think, if I can say it to you, pretty much that's what we have largely in American Christianity. We have non-missional leadership and non-missional churches. In other words, let me say it this way. We are perfectly designed to achieve what we're currently achieving. So if we're going to achieve something different, we must be designed differently. And I want to tell you some good news this morning. God has provided everything we need to get the job done. He did not ask us to be witnesses and disciples of Jesus and, uh, and, and to make them of Jew Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth and then not give us the capacity and the leadership and the structure to make that goal a reality. God has built into the church all the capacities, the latencies, and the talents to do what he wants us to do. We don't have to import anything from the business world. We don't have to import anything from any other kind of leadership structure. He has designed us for world transforming impact. Why? Because we are the church of Jesus Christ and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the key text though, I believe, is right under our noses in the what we call the constitutional document of the church. Now, the constitutional document of the kingdom of God is called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. But the constitutional document of the church is, or what we call ecclesiology, ecclesiology just means study of the church, doctrine of the church, is in Ephesians. This is Paul's highest, loftiest thought. Paul's embedded in Paul's, let's say it this way, quintessential theology of the church. He gives us, if I can say it this way, genetic information. But... We must reappropriate in our time. Craig, you have made some really big claims. I realize I've made some big claims. I tried to make the big claims to kind of wake us up from our, our slumber, to, to at least give credence, thought process. So let's look at it together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. We're going to read actually through verse 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Paul said, be completely humble, gentle, patient, bearing one another love. Make every effort to keep the unity. Everybody say unity. Unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, one body, one spirit, she recalled one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This, verses 1 through 6, is what I would call the unity of the church. These are the, this is the common unity of the church. We find our unity in the one God and the one Lord and the one common confession. Now follow with me for a moment as we work through this passage. 
Meaning, in this first six verses, we see what unites believers. Now, we get to verses 7 through 11, and Paul's going to shift, and he's going to propose for us what I'm going to call a genetic leadership model, formula, what God desires. Let's look at it. But to each one of us, each one of us, grace was given as Christ apportioned. It's why it said he ascended on high. He took captives, gave gifts to people. What does he ascended? Jesus ascended, meaning that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He did this in three, three days in the tomb. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens. I don't have a time theologically to give you all the ascension, descension language. We'll come back to it. The next part's where I want you to see. Look at verse 11. The text says, verse 11, next slide. So Christ himself, everybody say himself, gave Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Christ himself gave apostle, prophet, evangelist. Another way for pastor is shepherd and teacher. We call this apest. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. The leadership genetic formula of the church. Why does he give these to us? That's a good question. Why? Okay, verse 12 tells us. To equip his people for works of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach all unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the stature, pleroma, a Greek word pleroma, fullness of Jesus Christ. Then we will no longer, then, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here by every wind of teaching and the cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming and the deceit coming even from Christian pulpits. Instead, speaking the truth in love will grow and to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. Him is Christ. From him, Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. All of us are ligaments. They grow and the body builds itself up in love and each part does its work. This is, verses 12 through 16, what I like to call maturity, but it's so much deeper than that. This is the church Jesus designed to be. Verses 12 through 16 is when the church is operating at her highest capacity, at her most fruitful, best expression in the world around us. Every part's doing its work under the head Jesus. We're fully integrated. Nobody is just a consumer. Everybody's a contributor. Everybody is engaged in what God has called us to do. Now, I've got to ask you a question. Leave that up just for a moment. According to the text... Not according to your tradition, not according to how you grew up in church. I'm going to ask you to put that aside for a moment. According to the text, according to what we just read in Ephesians 4, can we get to the church of verses 12 through 16 if you mess around with the part or the part of the equation here? Okay. Can you mess apart and change the formula of verses 1 through 11 and still receive the same results as verses 12 through 16? I would suggest to you, no. But largely for the last 200 years in the Western world, we have exiled all of the apes. We have gotten rid of all A, P's, and E's. They're gone. The only two functions people can have in the Western world in the body of Christ is pastor and teacher. Shepherd and teacher. We don't have apostles. We don't have prophets. We've silenced prophetic witness. And we certainly don't have evangelists. We have exiled the apes. I want to tell you, you can't get there if you mess with there. Now, let me say it a different way. Verses 1 through 6 talks about the unity of the church. We would call this the theological backbone. I want to ask you a question. Would you answer by raising your hand? Would anybody in here willing to be raise your hand and say that verses 1 through 6 is only for the early church? That is to say, what Paul puts in there is only for the early church, not at any church, at any time, in any place. I didn't think anybody would do that. All right. 
Let's go to verses 12 through 6. When the church is operating at her highest capacity, would anybody be willing to raise your hand and say, that is only for one time and place in history? No, we wouldn't do that. Then why in the world do we take verses 7 through 11 and say, oh, it was only for one time in history, and now it's no longer there. All you can be now is a shepherd and teacher. Like, Listen, why in the world could we get to verses 12 through 16 if we mess up ultimately verses 7 through 11? We don't believe this to be true. We can't take it out of the passage and expect to be the kind of church Jesus wants us to be. So let me give you some real quick definitions. I don't have time to give you a large portion, but let me give you some real quick definitions. A, apostles. What do apostles do? Apostles are all about the extension of ministry onto new ground. Apostles go. Apostles are about integration and about wholeness. That's what apostles do. They constantly extend Christianity into new territories. What do prophets do? Prophets listen to God and they speak for God. And therefore, they upset people often. They really upset institutional people, just like they did in the text. Let me tell you what prophets do. They have one desire. They want God's people to be faithful to the covenant. They're all about covenant faithfulness. Let's look at evangelists. What do they do? They're basically infectious people. You know what evangelists do? They recruit to the calls. Evangelists are infectious. They normally, by tenacity or personality, are extroverted, but they don't have to be. But they certainly draw people to the cause. What do shepherds do? They're teachers. Shepherds, watch, bring integration and wholeness and are the best used by God to create community in a fellowship. They're the best. God uses them to create community. People have a sense of belonging when they get around a shepherd. And what do teachers do? Teachers bring wisdom and understanding. Now, I want you to see something. These are the gifts of Jesus. Now, now that I say it, that's a pretty good, great mix to have on any leadership team, isn't it? So when people come to DP, they get really shocked very quickly, okay? Add injury to insult, Pastor Chad's last name is my first name. That really is really terrible, okay? But they got two pastors who couldn't be any more alike philosophically or theologically and who couldn't be any more dislike or non-alike than in the way they minister, the way they preach, the way they think, and the way they engage, right? Totally different gifts, totally different five-fold expressions, right? Absolutely different five-fold expressions. And so people come and it's, it's disorienting for a little bit, trying to figure out actually what's actually happening. Now, I want to ask you a question. To me, it's very interesting. If I ask you the question, do you think Jesus is an apostle? Oh, yes, he was the one sent by God. That's who he was. Okay, he's sent of God. You think Jesus was a prophet? Yeah, he spoke on behalf of God and he called people to covenant faithfulness. He was the covenant. He is the covenant, present tense. Evangelist. Was Jesus an evangelist? He came to seek and save that which was lost. Was he a shepherd? John 10, you are the good shepherd. Was he a teacher? Rabbi. You alone hold the words of eternal life to whom we should go. Watch. In other words, the ministry of Jesus Christ that was fully in him then now expresses itself in five-fold form through the body of Christ. Meaning, how can you be an extension of the full Jesus ministry in the earth if you're not willing to exercise a five-fold form? So it only took one man, Jesus, to do what takes five people or a whole body now. And when we are mutually submitted to, what, complementary giftings, the body reaches verses 12 through 16. Now, most traditions say we only have two functions still available in the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm a math guy. If you have 
100 divided by 5, that's 20%. So what percentage are we operating at? 40% capacity. Maybe 60% capacity. So the way we've termed this is the APE is the generative form of Christianity, and the ST is the operative form of Christianity. And shepherds and teachers are needed. They have to be needed because we, what, do they, what do they do? They maintain and they enhance God's capacities of the people of God. But we live in a post-Christian world, and what we don't need is more operative work. We need generative, creative work. We need the gospel to be advanced into new areas, new places, which is what apostles, prophets, and evangelists do. Now, let me just say something real quick. I think the devil had us do this. Some of you are to look at me cross-eyed. I, I honestly think the devil... Listen, we bought into the lie. If I was the devil, do you know what I would do? I, if I wanted to mess or take the church down, I would mess with its capacity to be the kind of church God intends it to be. I would get people to buy into a lie, to swat, squash giftedness. Now, hear, hear me. I'm not saying it's a silver bullet. I don't believe in silver bullets at all. Meaning, you have to reappropriate it in each context and time. But let me tell you something. We need right now, more than ever before in the Western world, we need the generative form of Christianity. We need to extend Christianity into new regions. Now, I want you to hear something. Here's the good news. We don't have to import it from anywhere. We just have to reawaken the potentials that's already in Jesus' body. These are the gifts of Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. These are not to be confused with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What I just showed you on the board is not the gift of the Holy Spirit, okay? We can't join them with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You've got to keep these separate. Why? Okay, well, let me just say this because there may be new people in the room. Most of us maybe know this, but if you don't, we right now at Dwelling Place, we believe fully in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe fully in the work of the Holy Spirit. We believe fully in the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm not minimizing the Spirit's gifts, but today we're not talking about the Spirit's gifts. Today we're talking about Jesus's gifts. And many people do not know that Jesus himself gave these gifts. There's no other language in your New Testament in which Jesus gave a gift like these five gifts. And he gave them to humanity. This is not gender specific. This is not like he gave them to men. This is humanity. This is mankind. But today I want to talk about how does an apostle help us. I don't have time to give you how apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher. I can only take one. So I want to talk one. How does an apostle help us? Well, why did Jesus give these gifts? Let me give you a story. Very early on, the Lord used Ephesians 4 to call me to ministry. I was 18 years old. The Lord constrained my heart through this passage. He confirmed that through two dreams then in several visions, and then the confirmation of believers and leaders that were in my life. This, is, this has always been a bedrock passage for me. Ephesians 4 has been it for me. But then several years later, I had a friend while I was pastoring. He asked, and he asked five trusted friends, and I want to tell you, he's a Christian, and listen to me. He was very honest, and he had good spirit. This is not a bad spirit. He asked the question, why do I need a pastor? And he asked five of us, why do I need a pastor? He said, listen, I'm trying to read my Bible on my own. I have accountable friendships. I grow, I pray, I have a wife. He says, I'm growing. He said, why scripturally do I need a pastor? And so I told him, I said, hey, I want to answer your question, but do you care if I use a little humor to answer it? He's a good friend. He said, no, you can use the humor. I said, okay. I said, uh, well, you're asking the question, why do I need a pastor? He said, yeah. I said, well, <clears throat> you're asking the wrong person this question. Um, you should be asking Jesus because he's the one who gave the gift of a pastor. You don't ask a pastor why you need a pastor. You ask Jesus why you need a pastor. So you all ask Jesus, why did you give a pastor? And he looked at me 
and kind of thought for a moment. And I said, can I use a little bit more humor? Can I go a little bit further? He said, yeah. And I said, let me joke with you. I said, you might also want to tell him that you would like to return one of his gifts. Because you've arrived somewhere in your scriptural reading where Jesus, you've missed it on this gift. You've just missed it. I, I don't need pastors to grow into who Jesus has called me to be. I'm, I'm separate from that. I don't, that gift. Now, he's a good friend. So it kind of settled a minute, right? Joking. And then I explained to him. Ephesians 4 actually gives you the reason why you need a pastor. I didn't make it up. It's right there in the text. Let's read it again. Ephesians 4, 8. Notice what the text says. Therefore, he, Jesus says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. That's the Old Testament saints. And gave gifts to humanity. He gave gifts. Jesus gave gifts to humanity. Well, let's look at those gifts. Notice the next verse, verse 11. And he himself, notice that, he himself gave some to be apostle, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now notice this. These are the fivefold gifts Jesus gives. Now why does he give them? Verse 12 tells us, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The reason he gave us these gifts are for the equipping of God's people for the work of ministry. That's why he gave the gifts. Now, I am one of these gifts. Listen, I'm joking, but I'm not joking. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. I just want you to know today, I am a gift from Jesus to you. <laughs> I understand that responsibility, but I didn't choose this. I wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. Okay? I didn't choose my giftedness. I didn't choose to be called. I didn't choose to do that. Jesus did that. He called me to be a pastor. And here's the next good news. You can't return me. <laughs> I have no receipt. Now listen, watch this, watch this. As a saint, as a believer, I do the work of ministry, but as a pastor, I equip you to do the work of ministry. You see this? I have two to do. You only have one to do. As a believer, a saint, I do the work of ministry, but as a pastor, I equip you to do the work of ministry. In other words, what are you saying, Craig? When you say, hey, Pastor Craig, I have a friend going through some marriage problems, and Pastor, will you talk to them? Yeah, I can talk to them. I have experience in that area. But I, I'm not the best in that area. I know people around me that are a whole lot better in marriage counseling than I am. But hear me. That's something you can do as a saint. As a saint, you can help people in their marriage. You don't have to have me help, me in, help them in their marriage. Listen, Pastor Craig, I have a friend. I just blink if you'll talk to him. I think you can lead him to Christ. I, I can. But listen, I can lead him to Christ as a saint. I can't lead him to Christ as a pastor because pastors don't lead people to Christ. Pastors equip people to lead others to Jesus Christ. As a saint, as a believer, I do the work of ministry, but as a pastor, I equip you to do the work of ministry. So as a saint, I can lead people to Christ, but as a pastor, I equip you to lead people to Christ. And by the way, all fivefold gifts are to do the same thing, equip God's people for the work of ministry. So let me go back to my, my person that I told you, my illustration. I asked the man who asked the question, do you need a pastor? Why do I need a pastor? I said, hey, have you ever listened to any of my sermons? And he said, yes, I listened to many of them. I said, have any of them ever helped you at all? And he said, yes, all of them for sure. And I said, well, that's because I'm an equipper. I am graced by God to equip you. I'm gifted by God to equip you. Listen to me. I was called at 18, but then I had to develop my skill to equip you. Hear me, everybody in this room. You are called. You are gifted. God puts a gift on your life, but you have the responsibility to develop the skill that goes alongside that gift. If you don't develop the skill that goes alongside the gift God given you, you will never fulfill God's call for your life. 
So he puts the call on you. He puts the giftedness on you. It's then your right responsibility to develop that gift side. Whatever skill, whatever competency that surrounds that. And this is the one reason you need a pastor. Why? Because they equip you for the work of ministry. Now, some people might be in this room and you're asking, why do I need a pastor? And you're asking that question because there are some really bad pastors. There's some real bad pastors. There's been a lot of spiritual abuse done in the name of pastoring. There are some pastors who want to lord over you, and I'm so sorry if that's happened to you. Jesus said, we're not like that. We don't lord authority over people like the Gentiles. He said, I came to serve and not be served and give my life as a ransom for many. So what was Jesus saying? He was saying servant leadership. We Watch this. We need leaders. We don't need lords. Let me say it another way, okay? Because we already have a lord. You don't need me to be your Lord, but you do need me to be your leader. And that doesn't mean I boss you around. That's not what spiritual leaders do. They don't boss you around at all. You know what good spiritual leaders do? They teach you and lead you how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and make good godly decisions on your own in the context of godly counsel. That's what leaders do. So let's talk today about apostles. How do apostles help us? That's my impetus for today, sent by God. Well, first of all, you need to know this. There are more than 12. All right? One of the most common misunderstandings about apostleship is that there are only 12. Okay, so here's what we'll do. We're going to have to look in Scripture. We're going to have to let Scripture teach us, okay? Because I hear it all the time, well, there's only 12 apostles. Well, that's true. But then there was one named Judas, and he denied Jesus, and so now there's only 11. Well, Paul, Paul, he, Paul was, you know, he had eyewitness account, rode to the map. All right, let's just look at the text, see if there's more than 12 apostles, okay? Luke chapter 9, let's start verse 1. Then he called, everybody say called. I want you to see the difference between call and send. You need to see the difference here. He called his 12 disciples together, gave them a power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent. Everybody say sent. He called and he sent. You know what the word sent there is? In Greek, it's apostello, which means to send with a message. You know what the noun form of that is? Apostolos. We get Apostle. Apostles are sent. Aposteloed them. Jesus called them, kaleo, and then he aposteloed them, sent them. He sent them with a message. The verb just means to be sent with a message, okay? We got it. 12 of them. Let's go down to verse 10. Notice the text says, and the apostles, let me reinterpret that, and the sent ones, and the apostello, apostolos, they returned, they told him all that they had done, and they took him and went aside privately. He took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Now you say, okay, I get it. There are 12 of them, right? Right. But we got a problem. That's Luke 9, 10. Then we go to the very next chapter, chapter 10, and look what happens. Luke 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and he what? Sent, aposteloed them. Exact same word. He now goes from 12, and he apostellos 70 more. And he breaks them up two by two before his own face to go into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So there weren't just 12. Mary, next chapter says he's 70 more. He sends them apostles. Here's my question for you today. Are you a sent one? Are you a sent one? Are there some people God would like to send you to minister to? Are there lives that God would like to send you to? Are there contexts God would like to send your life to? Apostles equip us to be sent. Listen to me. I know we don't see the full expression of it right now, but I see through the eyes of faith. I see through the eyes of faith as clear as day. 
There are people right now, you're somewhat operating in it, but I believe that in the future of our church, God wants to send some of you into the business world to be apostles in the business world. Now, I didn't say you're apostles in the sense that you equip others to be sent. I said that you are an apostle in the sense that you're sent as a witness into the business world. You're all sent. That's what God has called me to do, to be an equipper, to equip those to be sent. But you, you might be sent into educators because education is your field. You might be sent to medical workers because the medical field is your field. You might be sent to construction workers because construction is your field. You might be sent to engineers, mechanical engineers, because engineering is your field. You're all, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, you're all sent to your neighborhood. You're all sent to the current address you have and the current street you're on with the current neighbors you have. You're all sent into your neighborhood. If you don't think you've been sent, you just need to go reread the Great Commission. You've been sent. He's sending us all. Now, I've got a question. Is there a process between being called and being sent? Is there a process between being called and being sent? I have many people that don't understand there's a process. Can I just say there was a process even for God's own son as well. I want you to think for a moment. Just allow your mind to think for a moment. Jesus was fully divine, fully human, but he was the son of a carpenter. Is it possible that Jesus made crutches as a 16-year-old carpenter for a person he could have healed their legs? Is it possible Jesus could have made a casket with wood for a neighbor he could have resurrected? Is it possible for 30 years Jesus could have made tools that could have been used to alleviate human suffering when he could have just spoken a word and healed their disease? For 30 years, he did not do a thing or a miracle. What was God doing? The Bible tells you, you don't have to guess. He was learning obedience as a son. He was learning being fully divine and fully human how to obey. So there is a process between the call and the sin. And people will say to me, well, Pastor Craig, you just don't understand. I have a call in my life. I got a call in my life. And what I want to say is you don't understand. Every Christian has a call in their life. Okay. You ain't any more, you're special than any other Christian around you. Right. And listen, I don't really care what the call is. I'd like to know, have you been sent? I don't really care about what the calling you think God has put in your heart. My question for you as an equipper is, have you been sent? Have you gone through the process? process to have the authority and the function to operate in your call for several decades. Because listen, it's the process that God develops us to fulfill the responsibility of that call. It's not enough just to get the call. We've got to go through the process to have the anointing and the authority to minister in the area that our calling is sending us to. So let me say it this way. The call is the what, the call is the where, the call is the to whom, but the sin is the authority and the anointing to minister in that area. And here's the crazy thing. I'll give you a few examples. They walked with God, right? Abraham. He was called when? At 75 to be the father of many nations, but he wasn't sent until he was 100. When was Isaac born? When he was 100. Now, let me say a real, real, real quick thing here. The temptation between the call and the sin is to produce the call in the flesh. Man, that was a whole lot better than what you just showed me with your eyes and your head. The, 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 the temptation between the call and the sin is to produce the call in the flesh. 
So here's Abraham. He gets the call at 75, father of many nations. What does he do? At 86, he and Sarah produce the call in the flesh and lay with a, man, a lady named Hagar and have Ishmael, who becomes the son of the Muslim faith. Right? He had the call, 75. He's being sent at 100. And in the time, what does he do? He tries to accomplish the call in the flesh. Let's think of another one. Moses was called to be a deliverer when? At birth. Literally called out of the bulrushes. But he wasn't sent until he was 80. And at 40, guess what he tried to do? He decided to try to produce the call in the flesh. In fact, to try to liberate every Israelite from every Egyptian one at a time. So what did God do? God sent him to the desert to herd sheep and goats for 40 years. And then when God shows up at Midian, he says, now is the time. And we looked at it in great detail last week. What did Moses do? He showed all this insecurity. No, God, I can't do it. And God says, at 40, you thought you could do it on your own. But now at 80, you'll know that I'm doing it through you. Listen to me. All I want to do is, is get us to have our eyes opened up to the reality that there's a process between the call and the sin. And to paint the picture, I want to look at what, the, what theology calls the preeminent apostle of the New Testament. He was not one of the twelve. His name was Saul. Saul means great. Paul means little. Because when he encountered Christ, he went from Saul the great to Paul the little. He must increase, I must decrease. And we know he's an apostle. How do we know he's an apostle? Because one-third of the entire New Testament, when it uses the word apostle, it's referring to Paul. So I'm going to give you one verse. Romans chapter uh, 1. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated, watch this, to the gospel of God. Now, I want to show you when he was called and when he was sent. So in Acts chapter 9, he was called. It's when he gets born again, by the way. It's when he gets saved. He's on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians that are in the way. They're not called Christians yet. It's called the way. And the Lord strikes him down and he gets blind and his friends lead him by hand into Damascus. And a man there is named Ananias at the street called Street, a street called Straight, and he's a tanner. And God speaks to him in a vision and tells Ananias, you need to go lay hands on Paul. And he's like, eh, eh, I ain't laying on hands on no dude that's coming to kill other Christians. He says, no. And this is what he tells Ananias. The Lord said to him, go for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. This is what God told Ananias to tell him when he laid hands on him. There, friends, is the what, there is the where, and there is the to whom. But the when wasn't yet. There's a call, there's a sending. He gets the call, receives the call. Now he's later going to be sent. Now, let me tell you something real quick. There are three things that you have to develop in your life in order to fulfill the call of God on your life. Now, I want to ask a simple question. Just be honest with me. How many of you, you would say it's a life goal to fulfill God's call on your life? That's a desire of yours. Okay, I'm going to give you, bear, I'm going to make it three simple things. Must develop if I'm going to be faithful to God's call. Here's number one, relationship. Relationship. First thing, it has to be developed. Look at Acts chapter 9. This is Paul. Again, we're using Paul as a backdrop. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he's already been born again. He's already received his call. He tried to join the disciples, but they're all afraid of him. Watch this. And did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the what? Apostles sent ones. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was what? With them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Coming in and going out. How long was he with them coming in and going out? How long was he building the relationship? Let me ask it another way. 
How long did it take the preeminent apostle of the New Testament to go from his calling to his sending? Well, he received his call in 34 AD. Jesus died in 29 AD because he was born in 4 BC. We've looked at this. Five years after Jesus is resurrected, he receives his call. When does he get sent? He gets sent in 48 AD, 14 years. It took the preeminent apostle of Jesus Christ 14 years between the call and the sin. I got some real good news for this church this morning. I have been on fire and really encouraged. I've only known Jesus for 20 years. And when I look and ask God, God, what you put in my heart very early on, why am I not seeing it? I take some good confidence to try to tell you, we just getting started. We just starting out. It took the preeminent apostle of the New Testament 14 years of preparation between the call and the sin to be and to do what God had actually called him to do. This is a process God will take you through. And that doesn't mean you can't minister to people in the process. You can love people in process. You can preach to people in the process because Paul preaches in the midst of the process. But in Acts 9, he's called. In Acts 13, he is sent. 14 years in between it. Now listen to me. Relationship is so vital to your calling to be able to fulfill your calling. I want to show you something visually. The way most companies in America and businesses hire. And because of that, the church has adopted it for the last few decades. And we'll show you why, in my opinion, it's caused great disaster. Most American companies, most American businesses, when they're ready to hire people, there's many times you have to hire from without. You can't raise up from within. And so they're having to hire somebody from out. But this is what happens. The first thing we do when we hire a person is we give them position where we hire them in a position, and with that position comes a certain level of authority. Okay, so we say to them, you've been hired to be a manager, and this is how much authority you have as a manager. With that position then comes responsibility. So we lay out their job description, and you say, your responsibility with this position is dot, 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 and you fill it out. We hope he, I said hope, we hope he or she can fulfill the responsibility, and then we hope, secondly, we can build some trust with that person, right? And after we hope to build some responsibility and they fulfill it, the next thing, we hope to trust them. And then we hope that we will have enough time after they've been hired to develop a relationship with them, but we probably won't because we're both a part of the same organization and we're so busy we don't have time to spend with each other. Now, I want to tell you, this is the way most people are given authority in organizations and churches. This is, (laughs) I told an earlier guy, I'm going to say it whether you want to or not. The number one challenge that I've had in trying to get people to understand the leadership model in this church in the last seven years is that the kingdom of God actually flips this completely on its head. The Bible says the first thing I do with you is I build a relationship with you. I build that relationship in a way that is encouraging and edifying for both sides. Then what happens? As I develop a relationship with you, I learn to trust you. And when I learn to trust you, which is the currency of the New Testament, then what begins to happen? Or you learn not to trust them right? You learn to trust them or not to trust them. Then what happens if they what? If they fulfill it and I trust them, I give them responsibility. If they fulfill the responsibility in a way that God is honored, with that, I then give them a position. Watch this. And then God gives them authority because authority doesn't come from your boss or from your leader or from your pastor. God will only give the seal of authority when you speak and when you minister, when you have been faithful enough to be given the position because of your trustworthiness and relationship and responsibility. 
Now, listen to me. That's exactly opposite of what churches do. They go out and they give somebody a position of authority. Then happens, they have turnover over and over and over and over and over again because they've not proven themselves faithful within the context of a crucible of a local body. It kills businesses. It kills organizations. It kills, it's what we're facing economically. I I love this scripture. Because I have in my mind, y'all, my dream is to have elders and deacons at Dwelling Place Church that are here for 25 years. I see myself in the future saying, man, so-and-so, they've been, we've been together for 41 years. You see these, these elders here, 36 years, 36 years. We, they've been with us from the beginning. See, oh, that, 28 years. 28 years. And in a transient environment called America where no one wants to commit to anything. We wonder why we're getting the tar beat out of us in local church expression. If we're going to be people that are sent, we have to have deep relationship. I love this scripture, Proverbs 27, 17. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Now, countenance means face, but it's deeper than that in Hebrew. It also means your personhood or your personality. So watch this. What's going on inside of you to cause your face to look like that? So listen, in other words, if your soul is sad, your face is sad. Right? If your soul uh, is happy, your face is excited. Now, your personhood is made up of all the experiences you've had in life so far. So, so let me show you this. If you were bullied as a child, and Jesus hasn't yet healed you of that, and Jesus is the only one that can heal you of that. God gives gifts called counselors to help us with that, but Jesus has to heal you. So if you were bullied as a child and you weren't healed from that, when you were given authority, you'll be a bully. Light bulbs going off for you in your workplace? Light bulbs, corporation, organizational world? If you've never been healed of whatever it is that you've been receiving, you're given authority before God uses the process to work the healing in you. (laughs) You've circumvented the design of God to be everything He's called you to be as a sent one. Listen, I, I don't know how else to say, I'll just say it clear. You will never fulfill the call of God on your life and be a sent one until you first develop relationships with people who can help you. That's where it all starts. Relationship. Here's the second thing we have to develop if we're going to be sent. It's stewardship. Now, I'm not just talking about money. We're talking about money, but more than money. Let's look at it. I'm not, this is all Paul. Acts 11. Notice what happens. Acts chapter 11. In these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was a prophet named Agabus, and he stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine in the world in the days of Claudius Caesar. So the disciples, each according to his own ability. Let me just pause right there and say that's how we do giving at dwelling place. Each gives according to his own ability. Not begrudgingly, you give it according to your ability. Determined to send money bags, relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They were poverty stricken. This they also did, and they sent it. Everybody say sent. Apostello. Same word. Sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I want you to notice the first task given by the leadership to these apostles is not to go preach a citywide crusade. It's not to go and do miracles in the name of Jesus. It was to carry a bank bag from one city to another city. Because if you can't be trusted with little, you won't be trusted with much. If you're not faithful in the little things, you're not going to be faithful in the law. And Paul and Barnabas were called teachers by God. They weren't yet apostles. And so they stay in Antioch, which becomes the church planting center on throughout the book of Acts. They stay in there a year and teach the people. So, so let me ask you, what do we need to take stewardship in? Okay, three things, okay? Three things. 
We need to take stewardship in money, time, and energy. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of wisdom here, just a, a snippet, okay? Oftentimes when people, particularly parents, you know, I've been a youth pastor for a long time, parents come to me and say, hey, little Johnny's out pursuing my girl. What do you think about him? You've seen him. He's been a part of the church. And so I ask them, okay, have you put him through the questions, right? You gotten to know him? You know him? You built a relationship with him? He's pursuing. I think it's getting serious. What kind of questions do I need to ask? And one of the things I always say, I say, well, you know, how, how is his life of generosity? Does he have his resources and finances in order? And people joke and they think about my own kids. You know, my own girls are going to grow up. People are like, I bet Pastor Craig probably checks the tithing record of every boy before he's even allowed to take it. And listen, I will. I will. But why in the world would I let? Listen, listen, listen. Why would I let a man steward my daughter who can't even steward his finances? The easiest thing of stewardship is fine. It is so easy to give 10%, folks. That's the easiest thing in life. Time is so much harder to steward than money. The hardest, easiest thing on this planet to steward is money. It's the easiest. If I can't steward money, how am I going to steward an 18-year-old girl's heart? How am I going to steward a 22-year-old if I can't steward finances? And we wonder why we're prevented from the call of God being the sin of God. We've not developed stewardship. So stewardship, think about money first and foremost. Okay, so the, the idea here is that as you get older, you should get more money. At least hopefully, right? That's the hope. In other words, you're making more in your 50s than you're making in your 20s. That's the hope. But what that means then is that I must get really good at stewarding my money early because I'm going to get more one day. So if I'm a pastor of a church where I have a lot of young people, what do you think God's asking me to do? To call people to depth of money stewardship because they're making less now than they'll ever make the rest of their life. You have to be a good steward now. Here's the second thing you have to steward. Time. Now, the one thing I want you to see about time is that we all have the same amount of it. 24 hours in a day. You never get more time. Now, as you make more money, you actually have less time. Now, American economics tells you the opposite. Make more money so you can have more time with your family. It never works that way. The more money you make, the less time you have with your family because you have more responsibility. The more, so if you're at low income, you're, you have the most freedom ever. The, and, and, and people say, oh, I push back against that. Just wait till you live it. The more money you make, the more responsibility you have, the less time you have. Now, it's not less time, but it feels like less time. So you have to steward your time better the more money you make. We all have 24 hours a day, all of us, every person on the planet. And have you ever noticed in Scripture how God only uses busy people? Isn't that amazing? He never goes to somebody who's not showing some level of fruitfulness already and says, would you do something? He only uses busy people who are already stewarding the time. Right? Dwelling in the land and cultivating faithfulness. Here's the third thing we have to steward, energy. Now, I can't speak with personal testimony on this one. I'll just speak what I've been told. Okay? As you get older, you have less energy. That hadn't hit me yet, or at least to the level that I think it's. So you won't be able to do in your 60s what you do in your 30s. Anybody just want to give an amen to that? Okay, all right, just one. Good, 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 awesome. We got several amens, early gathering. Y'all slept in, they're oldies, you know, so they all. So the 60, right? Like you're going you're gonna to have less energy. Now I want to tell you something. I've been pretty good most of my life at stewarding money, meaning even when I got born again, I've tithed. I've never not tithed from 16 on. But I have made some major mistakes multiple times in stewardship of my time and energy. I want to ask you a question. Is there any area of your life right now you are not stewarding well? Because if there is, I'm telling you, it will affect your calling and your sending. 
if you're not stewarding. So I have, I've been open with you. I've not stewarded well uh, many times eating and exercise. So I had to make a big change in my own eating six years ago, unless I'm just going to consistently have colon pain for the rest of my life and then not effectually be cut off from my sending, from what God's called me to do. And as a pastor, burnout is an increasing problem in our day. So we have to have, listen, a holistic view of health where we all need to eat well, we need to exercise regularly, we got to sleep enough, and we got to engage God with His Word and prayer. Why? Because it affects our sending. It affects our calling and our sending. Here's the third thing we have to steward well, leadership. So relationship, stewardship, leadership. I want you to notice this, and I'm going to land this plane. Acts 13, verses 2, 3, and 4. Notice what the text says. And they ministered to the Lord. This is the church the leadership, and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed, laid hands on them, they what? Sent them away. They sent them away. Who did? The leaders. Watch this next verse. So being sent out, apostelloed by the Holy Spirit. Did you notice this? The leadership sent them, and the Bible says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. You need to be committed to your local church. You need to be committed to your family. Why? Because the preeminent apostle of the New Testament was committed to the local church. And he wasn't sent until what? God spoke to the leaders of his local expression. We today in America, we're so individualistic, we have self-sent people, right? I'm self-sent. No, no, you can't be self-sent. There is no such thing as being self-sent. You receive a call, and then you're sent by leader. Paul was committed to servant leadership and the leaders and because he was being sent by the leadership he was sent by the church y'all that is incredible folks did the holy spirit say to paul that day you're going to be sent no look at it who did the holy spirit speak to the leaders separate me paul and barnabas and then they what they left being sent by the spirit because they were being sent by the leadership by the leadership is God's design to be connected, to be intimate, relatable to one another. So God wants to send you. Well, listen to this. Here's what he wants to send you to. You ready? He wants to send you to somewhere he wants you to go to do something he wants you to do to minister to someone he wants you to help. Every person in this room, God, is, he, he wants to send you to somewhere he wants you to go to do something he wants you to do to someone he wants you to help. But my question is this, will you develop some character qualities in your life so that when you step out into the call of God, you have character enough to support the sending? And some of you, you may be going through some difficult stuff, hard stuff right now. But I'm going to tell you, God could be using those things so that one day he can send you to help someone. Help someone. This is why we need apostles. They equip us to be sent. So I'm going to give you a quick update. I think it's an encouraging update. You've been in this process with me. I never would imagine at the beginning of this year that God would be able to send me through Skype. I did not, I did not realize that. It was not in my agenda. But over the last few months, I've been developing a relationship in Pakistan. And those that are playing, you guys can come. I've been developing a relationship with some missionaries in Pakistan. They're both Pakistani people. They're brother and sister. And we've been built a relationship with them, and they come from a, a, a kind of a stronger, liturgical, um, conservative Christian tradition in, in Pakistan. So they're very unaware of the baptism of the Spirit. They're unaware of the work of the Spirit. 
And so we've been building this relationship with them, and I've been talking and building, just, just doing relationship with them. And um, I celebrated with you a couple weeks ago. It was about four weeks ago now. I had the opportunity to minister in, um, through Skype in one of their villages that, that had about 20 different villages come together. It's about 450 people that day, somewhere around there, 400, 450 people, and over 200 people gave their life to Jesus Christ, right? Remarkable. And so we continued this relationship. So last Friday, I had the opportunity to minister again. And uh, I asked for your prayers. And uh, I, w- I didn't know I was going to get to minister. You, you leave that right there. I didn't, get, I didn't know I was going to get to minister also on Saturday. Of course, in Sharia law in Pakistan, a Muslim-dominated nation, the gospel is spreading. <laughs> Unfortunately, something deceptive hit our nation about 20 years ago called the prosperity gospel. And though it's dying in America, it got exported to other nations. So, so Perwin, her brother, have to constantly fight Westerners presenting a prosperity type message. Good thing is God's not blessing it because it's not his gospel. Isn't that awesome? Not, he's, not, he's not changing lives through it. God wants to just heal and wealth and health and prosperity to people that are slaves. So last Friday and Saturday, I didn't know I was going to minister on Saturday, got to minister in two different villages, so two different messages. And folks, I'm I'm blown away, just unbelievably blown away, overwhelmingly humbled. But on Friday, there was about 300 folks gathered together and got to share the gospel with them. And then we got to pray for people. They'd come forward and ask for prayer and they would translate it, right? This is me praying. uh, This is me, yeah, praying for people. They just go into these villages. Um, They're all slaves. So the brick, they work at a brick factory. And so they, the missionaries went to the brick factory owners and said, hey, if, if these people run away, we will pay you what it costs for that family. And she said, they don't run away, though. They're more desperate to hear the gospel than they are for, for personal freedom. And then she asked me this week. I'll show you the video one time. I showed some of our leaders this week. She asked me, she said, my brother, we talked this week. She said, my brother wanted me to ask you, what kind of spell do you put on people? to make them listen and come from different places. And so in this wall here on the right, they, they started gathering on top of this wall as we were declaring the gospel. And this happened on Friday night and on Saturday, 750 folks came and heard the gospel. Guess how many gave their life to Jesus? Over 600 people <laughs> gave their life to Jesus Christ in Pakistan. And it's making sense to me. God, this, this, this last seven years of developmental calling has, quite honestly, sucked. It's hard. It's challenging. God, you surprise us in the best of ways. That if you'll build the character necessary, God will put his seal of authority and anointing on the exact area he's called you to minister. He will. Every time. Every time. And so miracles happening. Now, the, the crazy thing is that, that we didn't, these miracles happen not when we prayed for people. Can I give you a few of them? One girl's nine years old. She has a completely lame arm because her dad's a magician, sorcery. So he, he cast a spell on her arm at a young age. And so she's there, unable to move. She's laying right in front of the camera. And it wasn't as we prayed for him. This is what Perla keeps asking me. She says, this is not, we've seen miracles when people pray. These are not happening when you pray. These are happening when you preach. And while I was preaching, fire of God touched this young girl's arm Jesus touched her arm and she she started responding I'll tell you another story a lady back pain I showed him I showed him the, the story several of them this week back pain didn't think she'd ever sit and God started healing her back touching her back three weeks ago four weeks ago this lady came and she was not a believer she gives her heart to Jesus but she tells us now through translation three weeks later I had five thousand dollars I owed in debt to our slave owners 
And they were told us they're going to kill me and my husband. They'll just kill you. You don't pay the debt, you get killed. Sharia law. And so here they are, not knowing how to pay this debt. She comes to the meeting. She gives her life to Christ. She feels the Lord say to her, her words, I feel like I'm flying like a feather. So the weightiness of demonic oppression on her life, slavery, she's free. And guess what happens? In the three weeks between the first meeting and then these last meetings, people came to her house, y'all, started giving her money to pay off the debt. Christians did. Listen, this is not what, that's already a miracle that she's delivered from it. But then the slave owners come back to her and ask her, where are you getting this money? We want to know. And she says, oh, I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is where I'm getting this money. I gave my life to a Nazarene. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And what is God doing? He is confirming his declared truth through miracle signs and wonders. I'm here to tell you today, friends, if you will be faithful, to stay committed during the developmental process of the call, develop relationships and stewardship and leadership. And you have no idea how and who and what God will use you to bless other people. So I want you to bow your heads with me right where you're at. Can you ask the Holy Spirit a question real quick? Can you ask the Holy Spirit yes, say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? Just make it personal. And he'll, he'll talk to you. Just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? How are you communicating to me today? about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.